listening to the CIPD podcast series. We're the same as most organisations where we have an absolute plethora of data. Um, you know, we have spreadsheets galore. Um, I think the, the real nuggets are gained when you truly immerse yourself. It's not just about statistics. It's actually about what's the wider environment telling you as well and how can you bring all of that information together? What's it telling you? So it's the, the analytics that are involved in that. What's it telling you so that you can truly make a difference to the profitability of your organisation? And that's what this podcast is all about. How and why to use metrics to drive the value organisations generate from their people. The speaker you heard there was Alison Hilton at BT OpenReach, and we'll be hearing more from her in a moment. First, though, let's take a look at how measuring human capital has evolved. It's not new, but in recent years it's grown far more sophisticated. Here's Max Bloomberg, who's research fellow at Goldsmiths, University of London. So I think human capital, people, have been viewed um, as expenses to an organisation in much the same way as any other kind of overhead. So what we used to do was look at things that reduced the cost of people in the old days, as opposed to now where we look at the value that they add into the organisation. So we looked at things like absence days, turnover uh, of employees, and you looked at trying to reduce all of the cost aspects and the cost drivers. Um, That's how we used to measure human capital, because we looked at it as a cost. And now? Now we are starting to get into the idea, um, although we don't own the asset like other assets, if we pretend uh, that people are an asset and treat them like an asset, um, then we start looking at the return uh, that we get on our investment in recruiting the right person, in training and developing them um, into the organisation. And so we don't balk so much at the money we spend and try and minimise how much we spend on them. We now say, right, we are prepared to spend quite a bit provided that a return can be demonstrated, which is very different to the old days where we simply try to minimise what we spend. Angela Barron is the CIPD's Organisation Development and Engagement Advisor. She agrees with Max Bloomberg that it's a discipline which is becoming more sophisticated. Measuring has has come along a great deal in the last 10 years or so. We've seen a sort of move from organisations where they they struggle to even find out how many people worked for for them to organisations now mostly in a situation where they're pretty comfortable with data, where they're able to access some data which gives them some indications about things like skill levels, about skill shortages, about how difficult or how easy it is to recruit, some information about the culture maybe, how satisfied people are, how engaged they are, performance data, etc. Where the difficulties are is in translating that data into real measures that are linked to business outcomes. So in understanding what that actually means for some of the drivers of sustainable performance, things like organisational agility, organisational capability, the capacity to innovate, those kind of things. So the measuring most people have got their head round, it's the idea of getting real insight out of it and feeding into strategy? Well, the information and the data, I think people have got their head around. They've got their head around that there is some important data which can give them some important information and it can be correlated in many instances to things like um, customer satisfaction, sales, whatever. And it can tell them a number of, number of things, particularly about internal management, about things maybe they ought to be addressing to make sure that people are, are performing at their best. So, if converting all the data into useful information is the big challenge, 
then the first step must be to collect the right data. But what exactly is the right data? Max Bloomberg again. Well, that's the million-dollar question, you see, if you could answer that today. Um, I just don't think we know the answer to that question yet. Depends on the organisation? It depends on the organisation, it depends on the stakeholder, it depends on the part of the world you're in, global region, it depends on um, a myriad of factors that you're looking for. It depends on the market conditions uh, that you're working in. So if people are thinking about this, how would they start that thought process then? Well, I think what you would, how I typically start a project like this is I look at a particular industry um, or a particular sector in a particular part of the world, and then I start by standing on the shoulders of giants, and I look at what previous research has shown is a good predictor of total shareholder return. Um, because I think that's the winner of the game. And I look at the factors that they've used. So if they've found that engagement and employee productivity and spend on learning and development can be proven to do those, I'll take what they've done, I'll then speak to people in the organization that we're working with and ask them what they believe is and then create a hypothesis. So if somebody says yes, and I think flexible working hours is key. I'll say, I don't take that as a given. I'll then test that to see whether people who are flexible add more than people who don't have flexible working hours, for example. As Max says, the information has to be tailored to the stakeholders, both the internal ones and the external ones. Here's Angela Barron. How you use that data to measure things which are important to the bottom line of, of the business is a step further. So one of the approaches that some organisations take is they use that data to try to understand how well they're implementing their strategy. So if their strategy, for example, is to improve customer service, then they can use data on skills and performance to look at how well they're doing against that key indicator. The idea that data on human capital can help HR sell ideas and proposal to the board is old news for Alison Hilton. At BT Openreach, they have a field force of 30,000 people and they collect business and people metrics. They measure on a week-by-week -week basis, the board reviews the data weekly and the information feeds into business planning and strategy cycles. Now, one of the things Openreach measure very carefully is sickness absence because it tells them so much about the business. But when they look at the causes of absenteeism, it's not a simple equation. There's no one cause, actually, is what's come out. It will be different in different geographies, and that will be for a variety of reasons. So it could be because, actually, the work stack is high. It could be because we haven't invested enough in um, our leadership training. Um, it could be because there's a particular difficult set of business circumstances in an area at any one time. But what we gain by tracking is actually we can spot where it's out of kilter then we can immerse ourselves into the reasons why and take the direct action to actually make sure that we get back on track. Now I know you're using this data in your change management strategy as well how does that work? Oh that's a really big learning for us has been around the volume of change that we've got in our business is phenomenal. Um, over the six years that we've been going, um, the, the marketplace has changed phenomenally. We've gone from being a monopoly to operating in a highly competitive environment. So the volume of change we've put our business and our employees through has been quite phenomenal. And what we've been able to see through tracking sickness absence is the correlation of um, 
increases in sick absence in areas where we're doing the most change. So what we've been able to learn from that is the way in which we deliver our change is hugely important. So that means around change sponsorship, around leadership capability, line management capability, but actually really importantly is the engagement of our people in the design of the change. So if the change is going to impact them but they're involved in the design, then we're likely to be much more successful in landing the change and avoiding an increase in absence. This is the sort of real insight that feeds into business strategy. Nationwide Building Society understands the value of that and it's been working very hard to make the data it gathers as user-friendly and informative as possible. Here's the head of HR, Andrea Cartwright. We have stopped focusing just on management information and trend data. So there is this kind of tendency in organisations that we produce huge amounts of quantity in terms of the sorts of data that we can turn out for managers. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're a day-to-day manager, that's the last thing you want, is a, is a tome landing on your desk or a huge um, email landing in your inbox full of spreadsheets and, and, and just information that you then have to interpret in the way that you see fit. So you give them news they can use? We do. So we create the meaning on behalf of the manager by looking at the various elements, not only of the people metrics, the absence, the labour turnover, the disciplinaries, the grievances, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. What we are able to do is to look at other metrics from, um, yes, from a people's perspective, so our engagement and our enablement measures that that we do as an organisation, so both the emotional and the rational things that drive people's behaviour at work, but also, actually, what's the outcome? Because we are running a business at the end of the day, And what we need to understand is how do those things impact the outcome or is it the outcome impacting the driver behind absenteeism, for example. So we have done a lot of work to correlate the people metrics with business metrics. So we now start to understand what is it um, that drives higher sales lower risk you know we're a financial services business treating customers fairly is incredibly dear to our hearts so we have to be able to demonstrate that we are meeting those sorts of requirements all the effort the nationwide team put into gathering and analyzing this data paid off when they produced results which weren't quite what they were expecting the data related to their senior executive development program and involved the employees they'd identified as the performers with the highest potential One piece of work we did, which has really surprised us, is by looking at their kind of leadership style. We've we've run a a, a climate culture type survey with those people and actually identified that they're not as effective as we thought they might be when you look at the sales and you look at the engagement data. Interesting. Um, And actually, they, they probably are very effective in terms of a turnaround situation or perhaps a bit of crisis management, but their long term impact of their leadership style will not drive the levels of engagement and enablement that we need as an organisation. So actually we need to adapt our investment in our leadership development programme to kind of help these leaders adapt their style to enable that kind of sustainable level of people performance, not just the kind of let's get through the next nine months in terms of an economic crisis or or the kind of thing that we've (laughs) just been through. So you're getting really sophisticated outcomes of this, aren't they, that then feed into your strategy for all sorts of areas of your business. Absolutely. So what it's enabling us to do is to constantly adapt and be agile around our people plan, for example. 
So, good examples there of how human capital measurement can be used effectively inside organisations. Externally, human capital data is an increasingly valuable commodity too, but it's been pretty slow to catch on, and right now only a minority of organisations offer this sort of information to external stakeholders. Angela Barron. I think where there's still a lot of difficulty is in trying to produce information that is relevant to external stakeholders, such as investors. So it's about trying to provide information which informs them how well this organisation is likely to do in the future compared to other organisations in, in the same market. So tell me what reservations investors have about the data they're being offered at the moment. They're getting this data, but it's not presented to them in such a way and in such a context that they can make a clear, measurable link between the data they're being given and what that might mean in terms of business outcomes. Well, I'm not sure at the moment that they're even getting the data. I think most human capital data, uh, human capital information data is used internally and used internally very well. What investors want is they want different kind of information. They want information that is actually rooted in context but explained in a way that enables them to make comparisons. So they accept that it's, there's not going to be a single figure. So if you can calculate it, it's going to give you an indication of which organisation is going to do better than others in the future. But, uh, but they, they do also know that comparability is the key. So I think the, the secret is, is to provide information with enough narrative and explanation to link it to the things that are important to the business and the things that are going to be important to future business performance. Mylin No is an investment consultant at fund managers Henderson's. She focuses on ethical investment. She told me about the sort of organisational metrics they look for when they're judging whether or not to invest in a company. What we do is look at them across a range of what we call generic core issues, which is irregardless of what sector you're in, what size you're in, what geographies you operate in, these issues are important. So issues about diversity, for example, issues about employee communications and engagement matter regardless of what sector you're in. But then we also apply on top of that maybe what we call sector-specific analysis on human capital. So that's where maybe there's a particular issue that's more pertinent for the company in that sector. So some examples of health and safety, where you've got companies maybe they're involved in manufacturing, so physical health and safety is an area that we would put a lot more emphasis on on a company that does that versus a company that is a software company where maybe my um, emphasis would be more on sort of the training and development side because product innovation is so key to what they do. It's about people skills. Again, the biggest issue here is quantifying the impact of an organisation's human capital policies. It's all very well saying they've got a policy and they've implemented the system, but has that actually resulted in any think positive for the business? Has that actually generated a business benefit? Well, that's the nub of the matter, isn't it, yeah. how you quantify that? Yeah, and I think that's always a challenge, particularly for HR, because it's often seen as such a soft issue and it's more about qualitative things and it's very much subjective. But I think a lot of people who work in the HR profession will say that there are things you can quantify. And I think for these sort of issues to be taken seriously by investors, not just SRI investors, but investors as a whole, the industry really has to try and move forward in terms of trying to quantify or try, at least if not quantifying, trying to sort of demonstrate the link between how they're approaching an issue and how that's resulting in something positive, hopefully in terms of share price performance or improved competitive advantage versus their competitors. 
I mean, as you say, you operate within the kind of ethical investment end of the business, as it were. But this is something which, you know, clearly a lot of thought has gone into. It's something you guys do every day. Do you think it's going to become the norm throughout the investment community? Um, it's growing, I think, is the encouraging news. It's, it's probably from my side, having been in the industry for over 10 years now, it's not growing as fast as I would like it to. But I think in the last five years or so, we've seen the market grow, particularly in what we call the institutional marketplace, which tends to be the pension funds, those people with a large sum of money. And why that's grown is that I think people are increasingly starting to see that actually it's not just about being a nice thing to do, it's actually adding value. So there's no doubt in your mind that you can quantify the specific business benefits of those sort of practices, companies either putting them into practice or not, and doing doing these things properly or not. I think there are areas, obviously it's very difficult to, and I wouldn't sort of say correlation is causation, but I think you intuitively, you agree that there is a link and it makes sense. So in, in human capital, for example, if you've got well-engaged, well motivated, happy staff, and you're actually in a sector that's very sort of consumer-facing, that surely's got to sort of transcend and come across to customers customers that you're dealing with. Mylin No is convinced there are hard links between human capital metrics and the bottom line of the company and that this sort of information is extremely useful for investors. But academic Max Bloomberg takes the view that those links aren't yet proven. There still isn't much proof yet that publishing this data does prove or that there is a link between soft data like human capital data or strategic um, planning data that the intangibles do predict total shareholder return. However, if you look at the work of Future Value, uh, Ian MacDonald Wood, for example, Ian um, has a hypothesis and a portfolio to prove that um, by reading between the lines in annual reports for the non-disclosed data or the soft data, like human capital, he's proved that the publication and the reporting of that data does lead to increased total shareholder returns. So there is merit in it. Again, it's finding that fine line between giving away too much competitive information and improving total shareholder return by making the data available. Because they, people feel that if you really can predict total shareholder return from human capital metrics and you're giving that information out, it's giving out some sort of IP, uh, intellectual property, um, directly to your competitors. This is another issue entirely. With investors taking more interest in HCM, how can organisations strike a balance between providing informative data and yet not giving away their own intellectual property? What I think will happen is we'll carry on as we are today, um, handing over relatively low-level um, and, and uh, pockets of data like engagement and trading days and employee productivity. None of that stuff is really the IP that's driving the total shareholder return. So I think that key human capital data will go the way of all intellectual property. It'll be patented quietly, not available for public scrutiny. And for public scrutiny, you'll be given a couple of metrics that we're already starting to see um, and, and a couple of other safer ones like efficiency, productivities, that kind of thing. I, I don't think that we're going to see the true predictors coming into a balance sheet if they really are predictors because I believe currently CEOs will feel that that's a threat. And if you're starting to think about measuring human capital, then Mylin No has some advice for you. I think the frustration for me as an investor is that if you read any annual report from a company or you talk to a company, one of their opening statements is employees are our greatest assets. They're critical to our success. And yet 
then they sort of stop there, full stop, and that's it, and then they go on. And when you're looking at a company reporting on its financial strategy, that would not be sufficient if they were say, this is our strategy to grow in these three areas and full stop. They would then have to go on and say, well, actually, this is how we implemented that strategy and this is how we performed against the goals. So I think companies need to apply the same level of discipline to ESG issues like human capital management as they apply to financial sort of strategies that they have. And in terms of... I guess my advice from the years that I've been looking at this issue is that I think the challenge is they've got to make their management and reporting on human capital business relevant, identify the key human capital issues that really transcend in terms of business impact, in terms of sales, in terms of market growth. There's a real sense of the growing value of human capital measurement to both internal and external stakeholders. But it's also clear that the key challenge lies in selecting the right metrics – ones that shine a light on the interface between business objectives and business performance, and on the role that people management plays in driving business achievements. You'll find more information on the issues we've highlighted in this podcast in the show notes. You'll find them at cipd.co.uk slash podcasts. Join us again next month. We'll be looking at how HR can attract the brightest and the best talent. In the meantime, why not take a look at our library of podcasts? We cover a huge range of subjects and you can find all of them at the same address, cipd.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.